From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. COVID-19 hospitalizations are increasing throughout Southern California, but there's still capacity to handle the additional cases. However, public health officials are wary of the overall increase in positive test results and what that bodes for treatment. On today's COVID-19 update, we'll talk with Huntington Hospital infectious disease specialist, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. And LAPD Chief Michael Moore makes his regular visit to Air Talk today. He's the target of activists who want him out as chief, and officers critical of how he's responded to characterizations of the department. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Hope your day's off to a strong start. And we remind you, multiple ways to listen to Air Talk and all your KPCC favorites. Via your smartphone, the KPCC app. You can download it and take it with you everywhere around the world, um, as if we were traveling these days. And you can also listen online, kpcc.org. A little bit later this hour, LAPD Chief Michael Moore makes his regular visit. We have much to talk about with him, the statewide gang database and the decision by State Attorney General Javier Becerra that uh, law enforcement agencies outside Los Angeles should not rely on any of the data that's been input from LAPD officers. Uh, The Attorney General seeing that as compromised, potentially inaccurate data in the gang database. We'll talk about that later this hour. But we begin with the latest on COVID-19 with us, the infectious disease specialist at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner, welcome back. Thank you, Larry. Nice to be back. It's like you're just a part of our family here with your regular visits, and we appreciate it so much. I'm honored. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's start first with just some of the numbers we're looking at. I'm looking at the L.A. Times compilation of hospitalizations showing Los Angeles County. We've got uh, just shy of 2,200 people that are in ICU or other hospital beds, a 3% increase. Uh, the increase more dramatic in San Bernardino County, where it's an 11% increase increase in hospitalizations, and then somewhat smaller, Ventura, Riverside, and Orange Counties, each of those uh, with less than 1%. uh, Orange, in fact, dropping a percent in hospitalizations. Looking at those numbers, um, what's your sense of of where we are with the spread of the virus? Well, what you're seeing here are two factors. One is the movement of the virus through the population, And so um, this is a reflection of sort of what happened basically three weeks ago is when you start seeing hospitalizations. People uh, reach their peak of illness uh, usually within two to three weeks after they become symptomatic. So people that are going to require hospitalization will begin to uh, appear about that time. So we're still sort of seeing the fallout from uh, reopening of uh, restaurants and so forth, uh, some of the gatherings at the beaches and protests and so forth. Um, one of the other things you're seeing, however, is also where the pop, where the most of the virus is moving, and it seems to be in a slightly younger population. Uh, we know that younger individuals are not necessarily getting as sick as older individuals, although that data is beginning to change quite a bit. And so uh, that may be why we're not seeing the enormous um, 
number of hospitalizations and deaths that we saw early in the infection with uh, the nursing home population. What are you seeing at Huntington Hospital in terms of uh, what the trend line is for for uh, people in the ICU or in regular beds? It's about what we saw before, maybe just a tad younger, uh, some sort of between the 40s to 60s age group, uh, maybe not as much as the elderly elderly, um, although they tend to be a little bit more skewed into the intensive care units. We have taken quite a few patients from uh, the Imperial Valley uh, to try to help them out a little bit because we do still have some ICU capacity. So um, that that patient population, of course, are very ill. They've been air to our hospital for further care. And... Um, so it's the the sickest patients still tend to fall into sort of that category of older individuals with comorbidities like diabetes and so forth. But we are seeing a fair number of younger people that are quite ill with this, and uh, that's very frightening. More than 100,000 Californians are being tested each day for COVID-19. Um, to my memory, that's even more than the governor had been calling for with ramped up testing. And yet we see areas like Los Angeles County where tests are only available to those who are symptomatic or at direct exposure to someone who tested positive and appointments have become hard to come by. Um, what's your sense of what sort of testing capacity we're going to need to handle demand? Well, that has always been the the weak link in this, I think, in the whole pandemic, and it just it speaks to the lack of sort of a coordinated national program for testing. Um, and I think that we, you know, the governor has uh, has done a, as good a job as he can with the tools that he has. There's so many pieces of this. The the number of tests are uh, implemented uh, by uh, are in, impacted by the people who can do the testing, the nurses, the staff that that run the centers. Uh, the laboratories that perform them have enough uh, reagents to actually do the tests. Um, the collection materials, the nasopharyngeal swabs or, or nasal swabs that are used uh, to collect them, those are all things that come in short supply when there's a huge upsurge in the number of tests, and that impacts the accessibility of testing. Some of these labs are overwhelmed with you know thousands of tests that get kind of backlogged, and so you're seeing that across the country in Florida. I think they were had some of the labs where it was an eight to ten day wait. And that's just terrible because these people are sort of in limbo. Hopefully they're in isolation, but they're in limbo depending on what their test results are. So, uh, you know, if that's just really the rate-limiting factor, if we can really ramp up good testing that's quick and a good turnaround time, you know, we can be a much better position to assay the population. I will say that the percent positive number of tests, of course, is increasing, and that really is reflective of more disease in the community. When you increase testing, yes, you're going to identify more people who have the disease, but increased testing by itself doesn't increase the amount of disease you have. It just tells you now you have a better idea of what's really out there. LA Unified announced Monday that it would not be reopening campuses in the fall. And one of the points Superintendent Austin Butner made was that if they were going to reopen campuses, they would likely uh, need to do regular testing of students and all um, personnel on school sites. You're talking hundreds of thousands of potentially weekly tests if you were really going to do this as a regularized weekly process. Is that realistic that you could do that? 
Well, that's why there's such a need to um, look at uh, novel ways of testing. So, for example, doing testing that doesn't require uh, uh, it can just be a patient can give you a sample of saliva um, or even a finger prick or something uh, that can be sent off to a lab. It doesn't involve the healthcare worker. It doesn't involve PPE to be used for the testing collection, which we do have to do right now. And so we really need to keep pursuing that. There are uh, there are uh, platforms that are being looked at in that way, much like a pregnancy test would be done. You know, those tests are the accuracy has to be really verified because that's such an important. Uh, factor in terms of do they really have infection or not. But I think that's really where the role of um, easily implemented, safe, and accurate testing, there's got to be a lot of um, money put into doing that because the conventional way with nasopharyngeal swabs and PCRs are it's cumbersome and not always very effective. And I think that we need to really be able to push that through. Uh, Just looking at a story that just moved that uh, County USC Medical Center is uh, quite stressed with um, COVID-19 patients. Dr. Brad Spielberg, the chief medical officer at County USC, says our ICUs are very full. Staff is very stressed. Non-COVID patients uh, are coming back at the same time as as they're you know deferred as long as they can to get treatment. Uh, this from the Pasadena Star News. So uh, it appears you know one of the largest, if not the largest, hospitals uh, in the region um, struggling with this. And have you heard of this at at other medical centers, Doctor Schreiner? Yeah, absolutely. We're all in that situation where we're really trying to, uh, you know, handle a very large number of patients that are coming into the ERs and being, and, uh, you know, so many of them can be sent home. They're not sick enough to be admitted, but it's just, it is a huge, a huge amount of uh, people that are, that are ill and require hospitalization. And that's a huge burden on an already taxed system. And as USC is experiencing, we have the similar thing where we're building that on top of patients who've had elective surgeries postponed for a long period of time, and they're not really elective surgeries. They may be life-saving surgeries, uh, cardiac and cancer surgeries and so forth. So that those kind of issues are really problematic in terms of, of trying to handle the number of people. Plus, we have an exhausted medical staff, and uh, that's a whole other factor that's just, uh, again, I'm always impressed with the, the, the nurses and the infection control people at our hospital. They just continue to power on, even though it's really pretty stressful. Yeah, and and that was a question that uh, Silas was asking on our AirTalk pages. How is morale doing at Huntington? Because those of us that that know people that work in the healthcare industry uh, see a lot of stress coming home. It is, and I, you know, I think the other piece of this, Larry, is that we haven't really even addressed what the long-term sort of post-traumatic stress this is going to be, not only on our medical staff, but also on the patients who survive COVID. Um, you know, those we haven't had it around long enough for people to sort of address, gee, I just went through this life-threatening illness, or gee, I'm taking care of people who are dying every day. I mean, you can see a little bit in some of the healthcare workers in New York and some of the issues that come up, but uh, we've been very concerned with that at our facility, have tried to provide them with support systems and and also just keeping them, keeping the team together, that we're all in this together, physicians, nurses, infection control doctors, administ- administrators, to try to power through this because we, we don't have a choice. It's on us and we have to deal with it. Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, infectious disease specialist, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Uh, we're seeing a, a lower death rate from COVID-19 relative to positive diagnosis of the coronavirus. How much of that do you attribute to the comparative youth and better overall health of those who are are contracting the virus? And how much of it is 
the treatment has improved. Uh, the doctors have gotten better in uh, knowing what sorts of um, methods to use to aid recovery. Well, I think both of those factors are important. I would actually say that probably our experience with the disease now and sort of knowing what to look for, what are the signs of deterioration, when to implement certain types of therapies. And the the therapies still are very few and far between. I mean, remdesivir, which we still have access to, fortunately, although it is a scarce supply, is the only antiviral. It does clearly make a difference in shortening the hospitalization course, especially in in moderate patients. Um, But it is not a game changer. Uh, dexamethasone, which has gotten a lot of attention, uh, also seems to be very helpful, especially in critically ill patients. We don't really quite know when to use that particular medication. Early on, maybe it's not a good idea because you want the immune system to respond, but certainly later when they have immune dysfunction. So I think our therapies, uh, not intubating people, you know, keeping them, trying to keep them off the ventilator as long as possible, uh, proning patients, you know, that's a, where they sit on their bellies, that seems to uh, help with their oxygenation. And then finally, I think, yeah, the population is a little bit younger, maybe a little less um, uh, comorbid, comorbidities, and that's adding to the uh, less mortality. But the jury's still out on that. We really haven't peaked yet and to see what we're, where we're going with this. Yesterday, uh, the day after Los Angeles Unified said it wasn't going to open campuses, Long Beach, uh, Pasadena, Glendale all announced that their districts would uh, continue with remote learning. However, Glendale has come up with, uh, at least this is the first I've heard about it from any of the districts, they are going to provide child care for elementary age students at school sites where technology learning pods will be set up. So there will be adult supervision, students will be distanced, will be masked, and they'll be working on their Chromebooks at the school site the same way that their fellow students who were staying at home are going to be part of the same curriculum. The idea is that for parents who need to get back to work, are not able to be at home with their kids during the day, they can go to the school sites, but everybody's learning in the same way. And there doesn't have to be in-person teaching taking place at the school site. Uh, Dr. Schreiner, what do you think about Glendale's approach? Well, you know, we're all trying to kind of figure out what's a hybrid because it is important for kids to go to school. There's there's obviously social uh, issues that are important for children to mature, um, educational. Uh, my brother is a school teacher, and it's it's hard for teachers to uh, to teach remotely. They want to have uh, that interaction, that personal interaction with their students. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of parents that rely on the the schools so that they can go to work. Um, so there, it's a very complicated thing. But the bottom line is is that you know the safety and welfare of the children is much more important. I mean, it's one thing if you teach a kid, but if the kid gets sick and spreads the disease to other people and people die, that's really not worth uh, doing that. So I think the decision on the part of the LA uh, school districts were, was very wise. We'll see how the Glendale thing works. If it, is it something that's, uh, that they can pull off and it, and it doesn't cause a spread of disease, then I think that's a modality that other school districts might be able to help, you know, help with them. So it's all kind of experimental, but we have to always measure our steps forward by how is this going to impact people's health and mortality. Dr. Schreiner, I, I see conflicting uh, accounts of whether children are uh, high-degree spreaders of COVID-19, even if they themselves don't get sick, or if it seems that kids are, are not um, a particularly high-risk source of spread. Do we have enough data to 
in your view, make a determination of that risk? Yeah, the short answer is no. Um, we know that um, that certain age groups, for, that, for example, young adults or teenagers, may actually be what we sort of call the super spreaders. But we, you know, we really don't have a good handle on what makes one person a super spreader and another person who doesn't isn't infectious at all, even though they might actually have the disease. So we, it's just a very wide range, and the, the factors that contribute to that are really unclear. And so. Um, I think that if you have to assume that a child could spread the disease, they probably have, they may have less actual virus because they don't have as many ACE2 receptors as uh, people as they age. Uh, even young adults have more ACE2 receptors than children and, and fully mature adults have the, mo- the most number. And that may be a factor in how much virus is attached to the nasoepithelium and, and is shedding and their infectivity. But we just don't know that yet, Larry. And I think it's it's important to err on the side of caution uh, until we have more information about um, how infectious people can be. Uh, also, I, I'd like your thoughts about a couple of vaccine trials that are getting a lot of attention. One that is at uh, Oxford University, um, I believe it's AstraZeneca, the pharmaceutical company that is partnering there, this under the leadership of, of Sarah Gilbert um, at at Oxford. And uh, there, uh, they're apparently uh, getting set for phase three final stage trials um, uh, in, enrolling thousands of people for uh, their particular approach. Also, there is Moderna Pharmaceuticals uh, vaccine, uh, the results of which have been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Fauci uh, of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases said yesterday, really quite good news. Um, the uh, National Institute co-developed the Moderna vaccine and led the study. Your thoughts on those two? And of course, those are only two of of many that are being conducted. Yeah, well, I think they look promising, but there's a few big caveats. Um, the, well, the first, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is sort of a more traditional type uh, vaccine um, in terms of the way it's manufactured. And those vaccines have been proven over the years to be effective for other kinds of diseases. Um, we know, however, coronavirus that people lose their immunity to it. So that's why you can always get another cold. Uh, and it's certainly probably true with beta coronaviruses as well, uh, this being a beta coronavirus, that the the longevity of your immunity, uh, certainly even after natural infection, people that have survived COVID-19, uh, their uh, neutralizing antibodies, which are the important part of uh, immunity, begin to disappear after 50 to 60 days, which is a pretty scary prospect for a vaccine. Um, so the uh, AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is a more traditional neutralizing antibody vaccine. The Moderna vaccine is what we call a messenger RNA vaccine. It's a very interesting platform. Um, it is, there's not ever been a uh, utilized mRNA vaccine, but it's a platform that a couple of companies, Pfizer, I believe, is also looking at that. Um, the only downside is appears to require two vaccinations, and there have been some pretty significant side effects with fever, uh, chills, and so forth. And, of course, the big question is, are these going to provide immunity? And we just don't know the answer. All right, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital Infectious Disease Specialist with us. I was reading in the Los Angeles Times a, a story in which uh, UC San Francisco Professor of Medicine, Dr. Monica Gandhi, is quoted. And I, I'm guessing you're familiar with her because she's medical director of the HIV clinic at Zuckerberg San Francisco General and HIV is uh, your specialty. Uh, Dr. Gandhi saying that it, it appears 
that the amount of virus that someone takes in uh, can be correlated with the severity of the illness they receive. So in other words, if someone is wearing even a cloth face covering that um, that blocks out a significant part of the um, the, the virus, uh, uh, the droplets, that that could provide some degree uh, of benefit and cut the risk of severity of COVID-19. What do you think? I totally agree with Dr. Gandhi. Um, I don't know her personally, but I certainly know a lot of the folks up at UCSF and the HIV providers, and they do fantastic work up there. So, um, But she um, is absolutely right. Um, and that, that's a very interesting observation that that uh, even simple, very simple masks that aren't, you know, N95s, aren't even surgical masks, may provide protection. Uh, it, it is all about the inoculum of virus, the amount that you actually are exposed to in terms of not only whether you get infected, but also how severe your infection may be and also the duration of time that you're exposed to that inoculum. So that's why people in closed spaces in restaurants or in classrooms where the same air is sort of circulating, uh, they're exposed for long periods of time, that increases their risk of acquiring the disease. So really important uh, data that's coming out on that now, and I think that's going to be looked at a lot more carefully uh, to help us you know, kind of design ways of preventing that. But masking is clearly a very safe, easy, and effective way of preventing transmission. And for those uh, who don't feel much empathy for others, and that doesn't motivate them to wear a mask because of spread to other people, um, maybe if um, there's self-interest involved, more people will mask if they feel it it uh, provides some protection to them uh, in wearing the cloth covering. Uh, unfortunate to think that would be required, but perhaps uh, for some people that is the case. Dr. Schreiner, thank you so much. As always, we appreciate it. And let me share with you uh, a listener who called in just to say how amazing it is that all the physician experts we have on each day and have had with us for months now volunteer their time. And uh, the caller saying he appreciates all of you very much. And all of us would just echo what that listener called to say. Dr. Schreiner, thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Larry. Thank you. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPECC. Coming up, LAPD Chief Michael Moore joining us. He's man in the hot seat, not unusual for a police chief of a major uh, American police department. But we'll talk about where he sits right now with criticism from activists and criticism from among the rank and file of his own department. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up next hour, we're convening a gathering of African-American law enforcement professionals, most of whom are actively in law enforcement, uh, but not all. Some are former law enforcement officers. We'll hear what they say about the culture of law enforcement, some of the challenges they've experienced within their own departments, uh, as well as challenges they've experienced in policing African-American communities as a black police officer. That coming up on Air Talk next hour here on 89.3. But speaking of policing, joining us as he does regularly, the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, Michael Moore. Chief Moore, thank you for being with us again. 
Good morning, Larry. Uh, Let's talk, first of all, about um, the uh, ongoing criticism that you've been receiving from activists critical of policing in Los Angeles who want to see you step down as uh, chief of police. They're critical of uh, officer response to uh, the George Floyd protests in Los Angeles, uh, critical of departmental practices when it comes to the gang database that LAPD provides information to. and uh, they say it's time for you to go. Your response to that call to resign? Well, uh, policing in America has never been uh, you know, more challenged, and I recognize as the chief of police that that focus is on uh, the person at the top. So it's not a position I'm unaccustomed to uh, to being in, and, and being in, in this position today, I believe I'm the, the best person for this time. I think that, that my experience, uh, my record of reform, my record of of supporting the men and women of this organization while at the same time challenging us to, uh, to continue to evolve, uh, to continue to, to show that our, our, our efforts in each of our communities is one built on building trust and that to show that we are the 21st century police department and that we're a leader in law enforcement and the path forward, I believe uh, we can see further reforms and further changes. So I, I hear the criticism. I'm, uh, I'm reflective of it. I look uh, each day at my work and and uh, the uh, efforts from which I can uh, improve my performance. Uh, I'm not a person without mistake, and I believe that uh, you need to be strong uh, and confident, but, but I'm also, my effort is to avoid an arrogance or an effort of, of arguing or getting in debates with individuals that uh, some uh, are, uh, have yet to see uh, leadership or a policing that they believe is acceptable in America today. Uh, let's talk about the response to the protests, and we've spoken about this before, but you've had additional time to reflect on this. I know there have been investigations of uh, officer conduct involving use of batons, use of hard foam projectiles to control or disperse crowds. Um, and and my question is, in hindsight, as you look back on it, what, if any, uh, methods were would you have changed uh, anything you'd do differently if you were responding to the series of events now with the knowledge you've gained since? Well, the, first of all, the reports and the investigations into, these, uh, into this uh, period of time, both the events leading up to during the, the protests themselves and the aftermath, uh, those reports are very much in their infancy. We have ongoing investigations uh, in, uh, in, uh, involving allegations against officers who used excessive or unnecessary force. Those investigations have not been brought back before me. Uh, I do check in each week on the status of those. Uh, so I'm, it's still too early for me to assess uh, what went right, what went wrong. Uh, I'm encouraged by the recent action by the city council, which uh, authorized the uh, independent study. It's going to be led by Mr. Jerry Chaliff, former member of this department and former president of the police commission and a well-known uh, civil rights uh, attorney, if you will. And his uh, independence, I believe, and his uh, efforts of digging in to, uh, to the circumstances, I look forward to, to hearing from him and, and reviewing his results. Those results are going to take some months. And simultaneously, the Board of Police Commissioners, under the leadership of Commission, Commission President Eileen Decker, uh, has arranged and is organizing an independent study as well. And that study will be a direct report back to the Board of Police Commissioners, not through me. Uh, and its findings and its, uh, uh, what it uh, identifies as strengths, weaknesses, and, and uh, changes that need to occur going forward. I'll not jump ahead of those, 
and, and de determine anything. I think we have to get the facts, we have to get all the information, and be, uh, and be thoughtful about how we move forward. And, and uh, understandable that this takes time. In the months, though, that it's going to take for those uh, reports to be compiled, if there are other uh, heated protests that take place and confrontations between your officers and protesters, um, are there any different sorts of directions, any, any different sort of leadership you would provide without having that final report in hand? What I'm encouraged by is that in the, the, the definition of the, of the protest period, if we just to take that week or 10-day period, that the instances of, where, of the department having to escalate uh, in response to violence and in regards to uh, violence against officers, violence against the community, whether it be fires or looting or, or other, uh, other types of, of unlawful actions, those have been on the minimal side, have been the, the fewer numbers, both during the initial days we saw, of course, a surge in those in that violent activity, and we responded uh, in accordance to uh, our efforts to re regain control, protect uh, our officers, protect uh, other members, including protesters within these demonstrations, as well as to protect the business community and, and, uh, and those that were in the communities in which these demonstrations occurred. But what has not been spoken about very often is that there were countless other demonstrations during that period and since. Uh, each day in, across Los Angeles, we've had continued protest activities, uh, demonstrations both in the downtown area as well as other parts of the city. I get a, I get a, 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 a broadcast each morning of what the planned are demonstrations, and we have daily demonstrations that are occurring as we speak now that are happening without any type of violence, without any type of uh, attacks or against officers or others, without any type of damage to the surrounding neighborhoods. So I think what Los Angeles can count on is that it's a police department, a police force that will uh, make every effort to facilitate uh, demonstrations to ensure that people's First Amendment rights are protected, uh, as well as to protect the surrounding community uh, from those that who may want to take that demonstration and capitalize on it or hijack it by committing acts of violence or, or looting or fires into a neighborhood. But again, I'm thankful that in the weeks and months since, uh, the month plus and weeks since, these, uh, the demonstrations that really were heightened as far as the level of violence in the last few days of May and the first day or so of June, that those are largely behind us. Unlike other parts of the country, we're seeing demonstrations today that are frequent, uh, regular, and our officers are working effectively with the uh, organizers or those that are present in the demonstrations and facilitating lawful marches and, and, and presence of protests without having to resort to any type of force. We're talking with LAPD Chief Michael Moore on Air Talk. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like uh, during the most intense periods of the protests over largely a three-day period, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, that um, the, there were significant problems when a declaration of unlawful assembly was made and an order for people to disperse. Protesters didn't disperse, or at least not entirely disperse. And then you had the confrontation between officers and the protesters who didn't go. Are there other tactics that officers who were there on that front of the line with protesters could employ to deal with that so things don't escalate? So that's our that is our continued effort in each each engagement. 
is how do we ensure communications? How do we do everything possible to facilitate a demonstration? And then once a situation unfortunately devolves into acts of violence, uh, into acts of uh, whether it be property damage or attack on officers or others, and now we have an unlawful assembly and we need to disperse that group uh, and or, or make arrests, how do we do so with the, the least amount of force and and gain the greatest amount of cooperation from everyone present there. That that calculus is something that's employed every single day by every incident commander, by every supervisor and officer on those lines. And that's my expectation uh, that is happening today. It happens tomorrow and it happens today in the way future. There are instances, unfortunately, that we've seen not only here in Los Angeles but across the country where the best efforts by the police department, by the best efforts by those officers are met with with uh, violence, they're met with aggression, and uh, that in those instances, officers have to be able to defend themselves. I will absolutely back our officers that they have the, the right to defend themselves from physical attack, and they also have the authority that in instances, once an unlawful assembly is declared, uh, for to make arrests and to physically make arrests of individuals who refuse to leave an area. And in doing so, if then officers are met with resistance by, by, by punches and kicks and strikes or items being thrown at them, officers, are, again, are going to, to use a proportional amount of force. I expect us to use a minimal amount of force in all instances to protect ourselves, but also to affect those arrests. And, and lastly, there are instances in which we saw in those three days when our efforts to arrest were overwhelmed by the level of violence within the crowd. And in those instances, the, the decision in going forward, the decision of making an arrest when you have an unlawful assembly with, say, thousands of individuals that uh, refuse to leave an area, is our ability to make those arrests versus our need, our need to disperse that crowd to ensure that we restore order and protect the businesses and residences and others that are in, present in that area from harm. Are, are you going to be able uh, or your team go through and look at all these videos that have come in from the public as well as uh, body-worn cameras and be able to determine um, what what the precipitating incidents were that led to the physical confrontation? Are you able to get enough of a context to understand whether the use of force is justified? And I raise that because in in some of the images that we've seen, the Los Angeles Times distributed shown, the appearance on the video is that there isn't uh, instigation on the part of people in the crowd of protesters for what we see officers using. Now, there might have been, you know, things thrown at him before. We don't necessarily know. But is there is there enough there to piece together a more comprehensive picture of what happened and who might have overreacted? Uh, so, Larry, it sounds like you're sitting in the conferences that I have with my investigators. Uh, that's exactly what we're pursuing. That's why this is taking as much time as it's taking. We're gathering up tens of thousands of hours of video, uh, of imagery, not just from body-worn cameras, but from CCTV, from news footages. Uh, and I have already seen instances in which what has been positioned on the news is, is an isolated uh, clip, uh, and there's other angles and other bits of information, significant aspects of information that give a broader context to the facts of what occurred there. Uh, but again, I'm not passing judgment. I want to wait until in each of these instances, what I assure the public, as well as the men and women of this organization, is that when an officer resorts to using force, 
what are the facts and circumstances that he or she was faced with and what was there and how did they de-escalate if possible and use tactics to avoid having to resort to force and then what direction also were they given and as that was as that sequence of events where it was then executed or or took place and my evaluation will be was it uh, consistent with our policy was it lawful uh, was it was it the right thing uh, to do at that moment and in that calculus if it was if it amounted to misconduct to call that out if they amounted to poor supervision or poor command and control to call that out uh, but also then to defend instances in which the officers' actions were reasonable. They, uh, the efforts by the supervision and command control at the, lo- at the location was balanced in the sense of balancing the competing needs of those that were demonstrated, well, the, the injury or damage that they were causing. Uh, and that's, that information will, I commit, will come out in the, in, the t- in the time ahead, as well as having the independence of two independent studies that will also have access uh, to the same information okay. and make their own independent uh, assessment. Well, I, and as you well know, the L.A. Police Protective League, the union, has been critical of you, saying you really haven't highlighted enough the threats that were made to officers and what they were dealing with in the streets. And and um, they they have voiced that they felt you should have provided more defense for what officers went through. Well, I've uh, spoken with rank and file. I've met with them uh, a number of times throughout the city. And I've, I've also made a number of public uh, statements, uh, particularly during the three days uh, where you called out the, the highest level of violence. I spoke uh, about the officers that were in Persian Square where their vehicle was surrounded and their efforts to leave that area. That, that Sunday, I think the event occurred on a Saturday, and I spoke out in support of what I saw right there uh, very publicly that uh, I believe that the efforts of those officers at that point uh, were was justified. Now I have to get more information to make the final determination, but my efforts in supporting the rank and file is to defend them when I have the basis to, and that's the vast majority of time. But also I have an obligation to them, as well as the public in which I serve, and I serve all these parties, is to ensure that I don't overstate and make representations without the facts. And so it takes, I know many people would like to have this judged, including the, and our officers, I know that they, they want to have a chief, and I want to be that chief, that they feel supports them. But, I, but the, my credibility also depends that that support is based on facts and information and not on emotions. Uh, right. I believe in our people. I believe that the work they do every day uh, is, is critical to the success of the safety of this city. And I know their valor and I know their sacrifice. And, I'm, and yet, at the same time, I also know that we can fall short. And in doing this, uh, this job, those are, it's not a matter of being popular with the public or with the, with the rank and file. It's about being honest, forthright, and direct. We'll continue our conversation with LAPD Chief Michael Moore. We'll also take your questions at 866-893-KPCC. You can tweet at AirTalk, post on the AirTalk Facebook page at kpcc.org. We'll continue in one minute. LAPD Chief Michael Moore with us. Then coming up next hour on Air Talk, 
we speak with several African-American law enforcement professionals who talk about their experiences within their departments and with serving their communities. That's coming up second hour air talk right here on KPCC. Now we're speaking with LAPD Chief Michael Moore and we're taking your calls at 866-893-KPCC. Uh, back uh, to the one tweets at AirTalk. When does Chief Moore uh, believe the reports that he says are in their infancy be available to the public? We hear these investigations are in process, but we rarely hear the results. Chief Moore? So currently we have more than 40 personnel investigators assigned uh, to conduct the uh, personnel complaints involving excessive or unnecessary force. Uh, we additionally have robbery homicide investigators that are investigating crimes of, that were uh, violence that committed against officers, the attacks on officers, as well as the fires and looting, the arsons that occurred. Uh, both those are ongoing. And uh, regarding the independent studies that are going to be done by the Board of Police Commissioners, as well as by the City Council, I would expect that those will likely take, uh, it would probably take to the end of this year would be my projection. The, uh, the commitment here is to be uh, methodical, uh, to gather and capture everything. We will provide all information that's requested by both of these independent uh, groups that, that conduct their, their own analysis of our work, uh, as well as the outcome. And, but this will be brought back for the public, but it will take time. I'm asking for everyone's patience on that. Will video that uh, the investigators review be publicly available at the end of this? I think that it's appropriate in this instance for us to uh, provide uh, at least a portion of that video. I, I do believe that uh, the public needs to see a broader context. What's been published in the media accounts uh, at times is one is slighted or maybe uh, slanted one way or biased in one fashion or another. And particularly when there's areas of a great deal of public interest, I believe it serves the public's purpose to release it, and I'll be pursuing that path. All right. Uh let me ask you about um, also the way that protesters were uh, detained at some of the protests where they were uh, put onto buses. Um, there weren't face coverings. Uh, officers also didn't have their faces covered. There were concerns uh, with them sitting for hours, potentially exposing um, the coronavirus to each other. Um, has there been a review of that to determine if there is a better way of handling uh, mass arrests like that or taking into custody if they're not technically arrests? And um, also, are, are you urging officers or enforcing with officers that they do wear facial coverings? So let's start with the last part. Uh, yes, it's an order uh, I issued some time ago that uh, all officers are to wear face coverings, all personnel, uh, anytime in a public setting as well as in our offices uh, here uh, in headquarters as well as stations across the city. Uh, this COVID uh, pandemic is only increasing uh, exponentially across all of our communities and LAPD has not been immune from that. So the health and safety of individuals as well as their families at home is of critical importance to me. So we are uh, not just encouraging, it's been a direction, it's an order. We are enforcing it uh, as well as we're relying upon the, the peer pressure, the partner safety of, of protecting not only yourself, but protect your partner because you may be an individual who's asymptomatic and not aware that you have this. We're doing an outgrowth of testing. with uh, We make testing available for all of our personnel. In regards to the academy and other sites where we have uh, training scenarios that bring people into closer proximity, we're doing regular or weekly testing to ensure that we can identify early anyone okay. who may come down with this pandemic. <laughs> 
COVID-19. As to the custody and the transportation uh, of arrestees, whether it be for curfew or other offenses during the, uh, the civil unrest, that will be part of our broader analysis. That will be a particular area that uh, the independent studies will look at. And as far as internally goes, that will be information that we'll, we'll, we're also gathering. But let me also comment that a number of, I've heard a number of accounts of officers not wearing masks. So I also am aware of a number of accounts where officers were wearing masks and face coverings. Same with protesters. I've seen tens of thousands of protesters, uh, many of them unmasked uh, frequently within, uh, within inches of an officer uh, and expressing themselves. And I've also seen protesters with masks. Uh, those that were arrested uh, that, can, that had masks, certainly those, those masks were, were, were not taken from them. Those that were not, without masks, if, there was a, uh, if we had the ability to provide masks, we did so. We will look at and understand whether uh, how pervasive that was. And I've heard reports of people saying that they were entered onto a bus and they were not provided a mask and they were caused to sit in close proximity to someone for hours. I regret that, that the circumstances were such that uh, people were caused to be detained for, for long well, periods of time uh, while we processed their arrests. And certainly we'll do everything we can within uh, you know, what, what we practically can do when you look at the number of individuals who refuse to leave areas, who refuse to comply with curfew, uh, who were involved in unlawful acts, uh, and we, we took uh, efforts to bring them into custody to stop and regain, to stop violence, to stop property damage, and to restore order into our communities. All right. Is, uh, it's not a perfect scenario and one that we'll study and look at closely. Uh, this pandemic, however, is unique uh, and to all of law enforcement and our experience of taking personal protective efforts. We do that every day in our work, but certainly the pandemic has added a whole nother level of complexity to that challenge. Well, and you can't you can't force all protesters to mask, but you certainly have the leverage with your officers. And is that something that you are enforcing, that they all need to wear face coverings? Yes, we are enforcing that, and it's being enforced today. Uh, and we also recognize that there are instances when an officer might be in a foot pursuit, the officer may be in a critical time in which he or she needs to provide communications over a radio system in which a mask covering uh, muffles or, or interferes with that. I have to happen, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you on a phone right now without a mask on. Sure. If I were to wear a mask, the value or the quality of my ability to, for you to understand what I'm trying to convey would be impacted. That is many more full the case when an officer is trying to communicate in a crowd control or, or a violent or turbulent situation, and he or she's trying to talk on a radio to coordinate uh, and get uh, assistance or help and to help uh, resolve a situation. But again, okay. those are emergency situations. The, the, the day-to-day actions of an officer moving about the city, uh, an officer wor- working at a desk or in an office place, the expectation today and the enforcement is that they wear those masks. Okay that time it's for their protection as well as the public as well as their workmates well and 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 it models as well as a as a public entity representing the public what the expectation is for safer practices we'll be back with lapd chief michael moore you're listening to air talk on kpcc back in one minute you're listening to air talk on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Coming up in our second hour of Air Talk, the future of the Tournament of Roses big events, the Rose Parade. Is it going to be held January 1st, 2021? What about the big game, the Rose Bowl? 
on uh, that same day. We hope to get some clarity coming up. Second hour, Air Talk here on KPCC. LAPD Chief Michael Moore joining us right now. Uh, Maurice asks on Facebook, have there been any arrests of looters? I would think with so many cameras around these days, that should lead to some evidence of who was responsible. Chief? Oh, absolutely. I believe on, I reported on the Monday uh, of the initial week of protests that from the night before, 70 70 individuals had been arrested for acts of looting. Uh, And so the the overall numbers I don't have at my fingertips, but we've reported it earlier. Uh, There were efforts, and and not just efforts, but results, in identifying those that were uh, were committing looting and preying upon businesses across the city. Uh, all right. Uh, I want to ask you also about uh, the L.A. Times analysis of uh, calls coming into the LAPD since 2010. Uh, the Times reporting team, Joel Rubin, Ben Poston, uh, found fewer than 8 percent were reports of violent crimes, which the Times defined as homicides, assaults with deadly weapons, robberies, batteries, shots fired and rape. Uh, And the analysis found there were many more traffic accident responses and calls recorded as minor disturbances. So the implication in the analysis is that it's a small percentage, less than 10 percent of the calls that come in, that would potentially require armed uniformed police officers to respond. Um, your, your, Your thoughts of that analysis? Well, the analysis had a number of flaws to it, including that half of the accounts of what they called a call for service was actually an officer-initiated activity. So you have to, first of all, you take the analysis, and you, it's about a million calls for service a year is what, the, uh, is what LAP actually responds to each year. By the way, we, we have about three to four million calls into 911. People believe they have an emergency, and we siphon it down, and we whittle that down to about a, a one million times a year that we'll actually assign that as a routine or urgent or emergency call. And the Times is correct. The, the small, a smaller percentage of those, uh, perhaps two out of ten, uh, are actually violent crimes or something that, that would uh, me, mean an immediate uh, law enforcement response that could require uh, the use of, of, uh, of their emergency powers of arrest, as well as the fact that there's violence involved, which may necessitate an officer to defend themselves or defend someone else from, from a person's attack. So there's a couple aspects here. First and foremost, the Los Angeles Police Department and Fire Department and our public safety responds to public service. And I look forward to the conversation today that is saying that they're being asked that we're being asked to do too much because I fully agree with that. We're being asked to handle far too many calls that are not truly a law enforcement related uh, responsibility, but law enforcement's been tasked with it where that deals with people experiencing homelessness, people experiencing some type of mental health crisis. There's just uh, countless times in which minor matters that really are not law enforcement uh, dependent are something that we're the agency of, of last resort because social services programming doesn't exist for someone else to respond. I look forward, I'm working currently with uh, on a steering committee with Dr. Sharon from Department of Mental Health, as well as Dr. Ross from the California Endowment, to identify for the Board of Supervisors uh, an alternative to that. There has been, uh, on the city council and supported by the mayor, the establishment of an alternate department that would take tens of thousands of calls. 
we responded to 70,000 reported traffic collisions last year. And the vast majority of them do not involve serious injury or death. And why that that's a requirement for law enforcement to handle that? Is it really a necessary uh, part of our work? I would look, I look forward to realigning those responsibilities so is, and shifting them. Is it possible that then 80% of what our typical police responses could be done by uh, civilian personnel, people that respond to traffic accidents, and that's their thing, people who respond to uh, individuals reporting uh, suicidal uh, threats, um, people that respond to domestic disputes. Is it possible to come up with uh, a core of specialized groups other than law enforcement officers and that the job of police would be cut back to just a fraction of what it is? So that's the, I think that's some people who have that theory in their mind. And I look forward to sitting at a round table with shared responsibility of public safety that says, how can we shift resources safely to other disciplines that can protect victims from further harm, that can ensure that people are not allowed to pray or, 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 or promote violence against others. And that's critical. You have a traffic collision, for example, that doesn't involve someone driving under the influence, doesn't involve a crime. It, can that be investigated by a Department of Transportation officer? But I all, I'm also concerned, for instance, quickly, yeah, domestic violence, that you have victims that they not be further victimized because of a lack of a law enforcement presence. All right. Chief Moore, as always, we appreciate it very much. Look forward to talking with you again soon. LAPD Chief Michael Moore on Air Talk.
Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. We've got much to talk about this hour. And hope you're finding us easily by telling your smart speaker to play KPCC or using your smartphone app for KPCC. You can also, of course, listen on FM and listen throughout the course of the day as we bring you Fresh Air with Terry Gross coming up right after us at noon, BBC News Hour at 1 o'clock, and then Aim Martinez with our own local Take Two at 2 o'clock here on 89.3. We continue in the vein of policing, as we did with LAPD Chief Michael Moore last hour. But this hour, we're going to talk with a trio of African-American law enforcement professionals to get their individual perspectives on what the culture's like at their department for officers of color, what it's like serving African-American communities, and uh, if there are times when law enforcement professionals find themselves caught between two different cultures. We begin by looking at what Los Angeles County residents say about their police departments. The Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University released this survey earlier this year, and it found that overall, 62% of Los Angeles County residents have trust in their local police department. 38% don't. Uh, For white Angelinos, 70% approve of what their law enforcement departments are doing and have trust in them. It's even higher for Asian Americans. 76% of Asian uh, Angelinos have trust in law enforcement. A solid majority of Latinos, 59%, also show support for their local law enforcement departments throughout the county. But when you look at African-American Angelenos, that drops to just over a third that trust. 36% have trust in police, 64% do not. The glaring outlier when it comes to trust in police. So what is it like for an individual African-American law enforcement professional. Joining us is Rashad Sharif, Senior Lead Officer with the LAPD's Community Engagement Group, which does liaison with different communities across the city of L.A. Thank you so much, uh, Officer Sharif, for being with us this morning on AirTalk. Hey, Larry, appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. When you hear the results of that Center for the Study of L.A. survey, does that ring true for you based on your experience that that um, nearly two-thirds of African-Americans don't trust police? That number seems a bit low to me just because when I'm out in the community, um, a lot of the residents, African-American, enjoy seeing me as an African-American officer out there in their neighborhoods protecting them. So I don't know if that was maybe all officers, but my feeling in the black community is a large community, a large portion of them actually love seeing a black police officer patrolling their neighborhoods. And did they talk about that with you specifically? Um, like, uh, hey, it's, you know, good, good to see uh, someone who looks like me, uh, you know, something like that, uh, who's who's with the police? Yes, I get comments all the time. My partner and I will be out along Crenshaw Boulevard, and people say, hey, it's good to see two brothers out there. That's yeah. what they say. So, uh, and that's been my experience in my 30 years, is that for the most part, 
the Af in the Amer African American community. I used to work. I worked seventy uh, seventh division, which is a Crenshaw South LA area. And uh, a lot of times, we really people were happy to see us, and they did comment on that seeing black officers. And and are there times that you get negative feedback from African Americans uh, who uh, might make a slur against you or or question your choice in being an officer? Well, most recently during the uh, local protest. Uh, I was called just about every name in the book, and uh, most of those were from uh, African-Americans, black people out there, and they would say things such as, why are you working for the white man? You're on the other side. You need to be out here with us, and you're black. You shouldn't be a cop, and that's the sentiment that I heard from probably, I'd say, maybe 10 to 15 percent of the uh Protests, and when I say the protests, the ones out here in front of a uh, city hall a couple weeks ago, about 10% they would say nasty comments, but the rest were 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 positive. And um, how do you feel about this? All these years into your job, does that um, roll off your back, or does that does that make you wince? Is that painful to hear? When I was younger, it kind of rolled off my back, but now it it kind of hurt because I feel like I'm out here doing the work. I feel like, you know, as African-Americans, we're kind of un, underrepresented in this department. We need more black officers. And I'm out here protecting, you know, my community, my area where I grew up at. And, you know, I got people yelling at me, calling me a sellout. So that was kind of uh, disappointing. But when I hear the positive comments, that kind of, kind of brings me back to say, okay, you know, I'm, do, I'm doing the right thing. But to hear those words, Uncle Tom, the N-word, things like that, 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 was, that was difficult. We're talking with Senior Lead Officer with the Los Angeles Police Department. Rashad Sharif is with the Community Engagement Group, which uh, liaisons with different communities throughout the city of Los Angeles. Also with us from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, Detective and Vice President of the Black Peace Officers Association of Los Angeles County, Dion Ingram. Mr. Ingram, thank you for joining us. Hi. Hi, Larry. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, what's, what's your experience been like in um, policing areas uh, with significant African-American presence? You know what? I've always uh, had the experience that the, the majority of the people that live in those communities, they, they appreciate uh, us being here or being in their communities. Uh, I, I think Sometimes when you're a black person that uh, works the you know uh, communities with the African American uh, population, I think there's sometimes an understanding, like you know, an understanding of each other's cultural cultures or backgrounds. Uh, and sometimes, or well, a lot of times, not always, but it, you know, there's like that unspoken understanding. So, where someone else that may of, of another race may respond, that may not understand some things, may, you know, you may have an understanding. 
We're talking with Dion Ingram, L.A. County Sheriff's Department detective, uh, and I'd like to hear from other African-American law enforcement professionals, either currently on the job or if you're retired, your thoughts about dealing with the culture of law enforcement, uh, dealing with your uh, race in the communities that you serve and how that's perceived, uh, whether uh, it's predominantly Latino, African-American, white communities, what sorts of responses you get, and and just generally how big a role does your race play in the job that you do? Is it something that you're thinking about frequently or or something, in a sense, you have to be reminded of when you're out doing your job? 866-893-KPCC. Dion Ingram, for you, are you are you conscious of your race of being a black man at all times when you're doing your job or is being a cop sort of where your head is at unless someone brings it up? Well, it's not something that, you know, I would say is constantly in my mind. I mean, you know, I never forget that I'm a a black man, but I wouldn't say that it is a, a, a constant thought. I mean, my focus and priorities is on just doing my job and doing it to the best of my ability. And when you look at the culture of law enforcement, one of the things that we have heard from some African-American officers is that even though uh, the demographics of law enforcement in Southern California have changed dramatically, that LAPD um, is a majority Department of Color now, uh, very heavily Latino uh, on the force, uh, that there are still... um, cultural challenges in being an African-American law enforcement professional. Do you feel that at all with the sheriff's department? Are there any ways in which you feel you're treated differently? As an African-American, you're treated differently by my department? Yeah. Or or by individuals within the department, if not the organization itself. Uh, I would say no. I I wouldn't say I've had that experience of someone treating me differently because I was uh, because I was a black deputy or, or black detective, okay, I would, I would say no. And with young people that you meet, maybe within your extended family or 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 people you meet in the course of doing your job, um, if a young African American boy or girl, man or woman, uh, you know, mentions about maybe they're interested, you encourage them to go into the job. I I talk to them. I wouldn't talk them out of it. Uh, but I'm not sure I would talk them into it. I, I guess I would have an, I would talk to them to try to get an understanding of why, because I've always said, you know, uh, law enforcement is a lot of things that you would think it is, and it's a lot of things that you wouldn't think it is. So I would have, I, you know, I'd probably try to get an understanding of um, why they wanted to do the job. I mean, I've had people that I've known that have said, hey, you know, I want to do the job because, they look at TV or they, they think of the pay and other stuff and, and knowing what I know about that person and thinking like, this is probably not the job for you because of, of some of the things that we have to do. So uh, I, I guess it's on a case by case basis, but I, you know, I would like to see more uh, African-Americans apply for the job. Um, and, and, you know, I, we definitely, I think we could, you know, it'd be a good thing. All right. Our phone lines are open for African-American law enforcement professionals, either current or retired. Your thoughts about uh, policing, what, if any, changes you've seen in the culture of American policing, 
um, its welcoming or lack of welcome to African-American officers. Uh, Also, what you look at in terms of promotions and leadership within departments. Is that starting to show uh, a broader reflection of the communities that the departments serve, or is that not happening? And why do you think if it isn't, why isn't that happening? 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Uh, the 2021 Rose Parade has been canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. Planning is still continuing on the Rose Bowl game, but of course there's uncertainty as to whether the game will be played on New Year's Day 2021. But we'll have additional information. Our Sharon McNary is closely covering this. The announcement just been made at Tournament House in Pasadena. Sharon will be with us shortly to provide uh, background on uh, how the Tournament of Roses went through this decision-making process. Also joining us is retired LAPD Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, who's been with us to talk about use of force and other issues in policing uh, over the years on AirTalk. Uh, Sergeant Dorsey, thank you for being with us again. First of all, what's what's your sense of how the department you worked for for a couple of decades has changed as its demographics have shifted. Is it a more welcoming place for African-American officers? Well, listen, I don't think it's more welcoming, and I don't think the police chief, Michael Moore, really has an appetite to get folks who look like me on that department. I mean, when I was on the LAPD, and understand the only reason <laughs> that me and a lot of folks that who came after me were hired is because they were forced. The department was under a consent <laughs> decree in 1980 to hire not only more uh, black folks, but more women. And so at that time, LAPD at some point during my tenure had uh, maintained a, about an 11 percent um, of, of blacks on the department. And over time, it's dwindled down. And now I'm told it's somewhere hovering around 9 percent. And so I find it off-putting that when you do have police officers who attain the rank of deputy chief, as in uh, the case of Amada Tingaridis, who was recently promoted, and Regina Scott, and others who uh, get to breathe that special air. When they walk through other police divisions and they don't see folks who look like them, I don't understand why they're not bothered and why there isn't a more concerted effort to in uh, to recruit black people. One of the things um, that when we've talked with Chief Moore about this, he says very, very challenging um, in part because of negative attitudes that young African-Americans have toward police, which makes it more difficult to recruit. Um, if that's the case, how do you think urban departments like L.A. could could uh, get around that, could deal with that distrust of police? Well, listen, that's very easy to say if there's no one there in uh, opposition to what uh, Michael Moore is putting forth. But the fact of the matter is I've had many Uh, young black men uh, contact me via my social media and say, hey, I'm in the process. And, you know, when when blacks are in background investigations, they want to know from us how many bubbles are in a bar of soap. And uh, I'm sure that those questions are not posed to white folks. I even had an officer recently tell me in the midst of his background investigation, the background investigator asked him, why do you have two jobs? As if having two jobs somehow is a disqualifier. And so I would say to Michael Moore, because he knows who I am, we grew up on the job together. If you want to recruit black folks on the LAPD, sir, I would love to be a tool to help you in that vein. And so it's it's a very simple process 
process if it's something that you want to fix. And I'm not believing that he's being um, intellectually honest with us when he says that it's very hard because people have a negative attitude. All right. We're talking with uh, Cheryl Dorsey, retired LAPD sergeant who served from 1980 to 2000. And we're taking your calls, African-American law enforcement officers uh, or retired officers like Ebony. Uh, I'd like to talk with Ebony. Can someone? Thank you. Ebony in Anaheim, you're on Air Talk. Hello, how are you? Hi, good, thanks. What's your experience? Sure, I was a police officer in the city of Roanoke, um, in Roanoke, Virginia, for six years. And my experience was one that I really appreciated because it did allow me to show my community, the African-American community, a strong protector that was very honest and there to help them. Um, I'm I'm totally in agreement with um, what Ms. Cheryl is saying in that representation matters. Representation is of the utmost importance, not just now, but forever. Um, We need representation not only with women, but with um, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans, um, of course, African Americans. We do not have that type of representation in in policing, which creates a dichotomy. It creates sometimes an us and them, depending on what department you're in. I think it is really important as well that um, the that there is a breakdown of this black people don't like the police. Um, there has to be an inroad to that somewhere, and that should definitely start with law enforcement. And, and so how would, in your view, um, you know, having been on the ground working in Roanoke, um, how, how would you do that? What is the way that law enforcement can, um, if the trust is, is not there to the extent to make policing attractive, how, how do you get around that? Well, that starts with things like community policing. Um, the chief of police in the city of Roanoke, Chief Samuel Roman, he is an expert in community policing, and he has put that forth um, throughout his entire tenure. I think we just lost Ebony. Ebony, are you back? Yes. Can okay. you hear me? Yeah, I can now. You just dipped out for a moment. Right. I was saying that um, the chief of police in the city of Roanoke, Chief Samuel Roman, is an expert in community policing, and he has put that forth in the entirety of his tenure there. And community policing works. It builds relationships. Um, It allows for the community to see police officers as humans, which is absolutely important. You see that as a a hashtag that is trending now, humanize the badge. That is absolutely what must be done. So you have community policing. You have your citizen police academy that gives citizens an insight to what it means to be a police officer. That is important so that they are empowered does not happen, as well as, of course, representation, recruiting more African-American police officers, increasing the salary, um, recruiting more minority police officers in areas that where representation matters. Those are the things that are going to break down the barriers. Ebony, I appreciate your call very much. In Anaheim, talking about her experience as police officer in Roanoke, Virginia, for six years. We're asking African-American law enforcement professionals, either currently on the job or retired, to share their perspectives on being an African-American law enforcement uh, officer, 
detective or uh, in management positions in departments and uh, what that experience is like. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just a minute. The 2021 Rose Parade has been canceled by the Tournament of Roses. We'll have all the details for you coming up in a few minutes on Air Talk here on KPCC. Our correspondent Sharon McNary has uh, been out talking with the uh, chairman, executive director of the Tournament of Roses. We'll have information for you about why the tournament made that decision, of course, related to the pandemic. We're talking with African-American law enforcement officer Cheryl Dorsey, who for two decades served with the LAPD, retired as a sergeant. Dion Ingram with us from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. He's detective and vice president of the Black Peace Officers Association of L.A. County. And Rashad Sharif, who's a senior lead officer with the LAPD's Community Engagement Group. Again, our phone lines are open for African-American law enforcement professionals, current or past, to talk about your experience. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Dennis in Carson says, I'm Latino. I just applied to be an officer with a local police department. Do you believe uh, that racism is a problem within the department. I feel if we want to help solve the issue of racism, the department first needs to address that there is one. Officer Rashid Sharif, you want to uh, respond to Dennis's point? Uh, Yes. Um, We have to deal with racism in America. And um, I'm sure there's racism on, you know, every, every department. But one of the ways is by that you can overcome that is by having a diverse diverse department, by having African-Americans and Latinos and people on the department who are not white. So number one, the other officers can learn from them. There's um, a lot of times where I was the training officer and my rookie officer was white and we were working in South LA and I believe just from my interaction, from my growing up and being in the area, they learned a lot about the black culture that they might not have gotten in school or grew up. There was one officer who came from another state who says, yeah, I hadn't been around black people until I came to LA. So obviously there's racism, but sometimes it's just not knowing the culture. And if we get to that one little baby step, maybe that'll help us. And improve the relationship between the minority black community and the non-black community. Officer Sharif, how do you deal with it? I I realize every uh, incident is potentially different, but if you have from uh, a fellow member of the department, something is said to you that you feel is is racially insensitive or ignorant or, or inappropriate, do you deal with that typically directly with the person or is there an avenue for you uh, to make a complaint about that? What, is this something that ever comes up? And if so, how do you deal with it? Um, I have dealt with it just on a one-to-one uh, basis recently with a lot of the what's going on here. You hear things that are said that 
are which I feel were either insensitive, racist, or just uneducated. And I take that opportunity to explain how I feel not only as a black man, but as a police officer and a city a resident of LA. So I wouldn't find, unless I saw something that was totally egregious that, okay, this person is out and out uh, racist or showing racist behavior, I wouldn't go to a, the command staff or make a complaint. I would try to educate that person and talk to the person and maybe they'll see my way and maybe they won't, but at least they'll know, okay, I probably should not say that around a person of color again. And I would just handle it one-on-one -on -one again, unless I thought it was something that was misconduct because yeah. any misconduct we have to report. Sure. And and do you feel that when you've done that, that the other person has been receptive to that or resentful of that? What's What's been the range of response? Um, they've been respectful. And the couple recent times that I can think of, they said, wow, I didn't know that. Now, obviously, I don't know later on if they went back and said that I was full of mess, but from what I could tell, they were receptive and they said, okay, you know what, now I see how you could take what I said as being offensive. We're talking with LAPD officer Rashid Sharif, who's senior lead officer with the community engagement group of the department. Also with us, L.A. County Sheriff's Department Detective Dion Ingram, who's VP of the Black Peace Officers Association of L.A. County. Uh, Detective Ingram, you know, similarly for you, do you do you feel like um, there are things that you you just have to uh, correct people on or sensitize people to? Um, that that are a result of, of ignorance or sometimes even malice within the department? Um, sometimes I've, I've heard people say things that I, I think maybe they don't understand the full weight of what they're saying. Uh, they don't maybe have an understanding of the, the history of it or, or, or what it means to another culture. So I've had those conversations, and I try to give them the, the benefit of the doubt by educating them and, and explaining, hey, this is what this is, or this is what it means, or at least this is what it means from another perspective. Uh, like I said, giving them the benefit of the, of the doubt. I mean, there are mechanisms in place for uh, you to notify a supervisor or, or stuff like that. But, I, you know, my approach has always been to try and talk to that person and try to educate them uh, because I think a lot of times, people maybe don't know. You know, something was done very egregiously or maliciously, you know, that's another thing, but I don't think that's the case most of the time. What about uh, Cheryl Dorsey? Sergeant Dorsey was talking about uh, the lack of inclusiveness of African-Americans um, in growing the numbers within uh, departments in Southern California and the lack of promotional opportunities that you're not seeing in positions of leadership within LAPD, um, with the sheriff's department, with other departments, African Americans in um, the highest level command positions, do you think that that is is a fair critique? And is that something depart the department's not doing enough to fix? Dion Ingram. Hello. Yeah, Dion Ingram. Did you hear that question? 
No, can you repeat it? I'm sorry. I thought you were talking to Cheryl. I'm sorry. No, I was quoting Cheryl. I was saying that she made the point that um, we have not seen the growth of African-American officers. We have not seen uh, promotions into the top levels of of local departments of African-Americans. Do you think that that is, in fact, true? That's a problem. And, And why do you think that is within departments? You know, it definitely seems like there is a drop in um, the number of uh, African-Americans being hired. Uh, Why specifically that is, I I don't know. I mean, I've heard things. I've heard that uh, it's generally uh, the blacks that apply have a tougher time getting through backgrounds. Uh, Like I said, specifically why they're having a tough time, I don't know. But I know, I don't know what our percentage is. I know at one point it was, I think it was some time ago it was at 8%, and I think it's lower than that now. Uh, All right. Yeah, we could we could use uh, – we have – it seems like we have had uh, for a while some issues with, with blacks. Uh, we, we have class – we've had, uh, like, academy classes, and there might be uh, – you might be lucky if there were, like, three or four out of a class of maybe, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 in the class, and, and – I remember when I graduated some years ago, uh, 24 years ago, there was there was almost 30 of us, and it's kind of dwindled now to such a small percentage. Yeah, Cheryl Dorsey, retired uh, LAPD sergeant. Uh, for those African American officers on the force, what do you see as the impediments in them advancing into the higher managerial ranks of the department? Well, first of all, you have to have enough people in the feeder pool in order to move up. And listen, let's be clear and, and let's not pretend. If you don't speak, companies speak, then you don't get to breathe that special air. And so, you know, departments know exactly uh, who to promote and why to promote. And so I, I, I believe, it's been my experience during my tenure on the Los Angeles Police Department, if you have a spine, um, you only can uh, attain a certain level of uh, rank within the department. If you aren't go along to get along, then uh, you become a problem an officer. And so I'm just wondering, and I, I don't know anything about the uh, Black Police Officers Association within L.A. County, but I would say that association and all of the others that are out there nationally, why aren't they, and this is a rhetorical question, more involved in recruiting people who look like them? They see and know the same thing that I see and know. And if you understand that there's obstacles and, and barriers being put in the way of Black folks, then I would think that they would have an affirmative responsibility to change that whole um, paradigm, if you will. And so it's not happening. And with regards to, you know, when you see an officer who's engaged in activity that seems to be contrary to your belief system, if you're not on the police department, you can't have an effect. I was able to do that when I was on the LAPD. During my tenure, the big deal was to stop a black man and sit him on the curb. When I worked with white officers who wanted to do that, I wouldn't allow it. But when you have something more egregious and offensive, the department needs to create a safe zone where an officer can go and report not only racism, sexism, and any other uh, harassment or discriminatory practices and not have to worry about being retaliated against. Because listen, it's not like these police departments don't know who the bad actors are. Derek Chauvin had 18 personnel complaints before he sat on the neck of uh, George Floyd. And uh, the officer who stood sentry, Officer Tao, had also been the subject of a civil lawsuit where they had to pay out $25,000 because he hit a black man in the head and 
knock the teeth out. And so it's not like they don't know. It's just that they don't have an appetite to hold officers accountable and create an opportunity for the good officers to report. And to that end, I'll say that when people ask, why don't the good officers tell? I say, ask the police chief, why don't you deal with the bad officers? Why don't you, Mr. Chief, create a safe zone and environment where your officers can come and know that they have your support when they report misconduct by errant officers. That doesn't happen. We're talking with Cheryl Dorsey, retired LAPD sergeant with the department for 20 years and retired in 2000. Dion Ingram, detective, L.A. County Sheriff's Department, VP of the Black Peace Officers Association of the county. And Rashad Sharif, senior lead officer with the LAPD with the Community Engagement Group, talking with us about uh, being an African-American law enforcement professional. I want to thank all of you so much for being with us and sharing your experiences um, and uh, talking candidly about what it is to be uh, an African-American law enforcement professional. Again, Rashad Sharif, Dion Ingram, and Cheryl Dorsey joining us on Air Talk. Coming up, we'll talk about uh, a first in 75 years, I think it's been, since the Rose Parade was canceled back during World War II. We'll talk about the pandemic's effect on the Tournament of Roses in just 90 seconds on Air Talk. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Fresh Air with Terry Gross comes up in 20 minutes. Terry talks with Jane Mayer of The New Yorker. She uh, conducted an investigation into a meat processing titan's assistance that he received from President Trump. Uh, we'll find out more about the investigative report of Jane Mayer of The New Yorker with Terry Gross on Fresh Air in 20 minutes. And then, of course, BBC NewsHour at 1 o'clock. But we have breaking news. The Tournament of Roses in Pasadena has announced the 2021 Rose Parade has been canceled. The Rose Bowl game, also held on New Year's Day, uh, is still scheduled, uh, but uh, its fate will be determined in the future. Joining us is KPECC and LAist correspondent Sharon McNary, who's been covering this story. Sharon, good morning. Thank you for for being with us. Good morning. Such a sad, sad day yeah. for me. I know the tournament is just a huge part of Southern California culture. How did the tournament come to what had to be an extraordinarily hard decision? Well, you know, the governor's rolling back of the bar and restaurant restrictions and all the other restrictions. I mean, that's really just the final nail in the coffin. For months now, they've been evaluating whether they can safely put on a parade, an event of this magnitude. Um, they brought in a group from the USC Keck School of Medicine. They had like a public health official, a public health expert, data scientists, epidemiologists. And they were asking for a recommendation where they thought Pasadena would be uh, in what the governor is calling this phase four. That's where you have very low case numbers, low deaths, no community spread, contact tracing, basically everything you need to say. It's okay to go ahead and have a mass gathering on January 1st. Um, and executive director David Eads of the Tournament of Roses, um, this was his conclusion. The overwhelming sense is that we will not be in stage four come January, which would mean we would not be allowed to host the Rose Parade. So that led to our then timing of making a decision uh, that we would need to cancel the parade. 
And I guess this speaks, Sharon, to just the amount of advance work necessary. I know we're five and a half months away from the new year, but all the advanced planning that goes into the parade and float construction and design approvals and sponsorship, I mean, it's, it's a massive undertaking that's year long. It it really is. I mean, uh, they start planning the next year's parade as soon as they've got the old floats, you know, back in the garage and all the oranges and crud stripped off of them. And, you know, there's a lot of local uh, self-built float associations that do the same thing. Um, And these float builders have held off and held off and held off on spending money just waiting for a decision. Also, um, you got to realize that the flowers for these floats, most of them are grown in South America. They need to put those orders in for those flowers in June and July um, because the growing season is December and then they get picked and sent up here. Um, You know, there's one or two floats that have all California flowers, but still these are things that have enormous lead time and there's a lot of money, a lot of jobs hanging on it. So rather than go ahead and invest in that money in a very shaky, you know, potential that the parade could be canceled, that that was kind of the tipping point to go ahead and, and say, we just can't have it this year. Also the local bands. Oh, yeah. That, that's a huge deal. There, yeah, there were Band Fest and, and, yeah, all the bands uh, that march. All of that. All of, there were five international bands that had already canceled because of the international travel restrictions. And then, um, you know, there's 17 other local and domestic bands that, you know, they need to fundraise during the summer. They wouldn't be able to practice together during the school year. That was unclear. Even Los Angeles uh, County Schools, uh, they've got a massive band. It's like two, three hundred kids. They couldn't rehearse together. Uh, so it was just so, so hard for them to envision this thing coming off at the quality that they like to do. KPCC correspondent Sharon McNary with us talking about the cancellation of the 2021 Rose Parade. Um, what did executive director of the tournament, David Eads, say specifically about the Rose Bowl game? Yeah, well, I'm going to make a little pun here. That ball is still in the air. Um, (laughs) We know traditionally the Rose Bowl game is between the champions of the Big Ten and the Pac-12 conferences. Uh, But in years like 2021, when it's a semifinal game in the National College Playoff Championship, um, there's other conferences involved in all. We don't know what they're going to do. The Big Ten and Pac-12 are going to have conference-only games. So uh, this is what David Eads uh, said about the prospect of the Rose Bowl game happening on January 1st. We just don't know what's going to be happening yet with college football. We're hoping that uh, a season uh, does happen. And, you know, athletes are starting to report back on campus. Um, but we'll know more probably in the next, you know, four to six weeks in regards to what's happening with the college football season this fall. That's Executive Director of the Tournament of Roses, David Eads, with this morning's announcement that the Tournament of Roses parade on January 1st been canceled the first time, first time since World War II. Is that right, Sharon? That is right. The parade has not been held only three times since 1891. 1942, which was less than, was about three weeks after the Pearl Harbor attack. 1943 and 1945. Now, in 1944, they ran a convoy of like three decorated cars down Colorado Boulevard. Um, (laughs) And so I asked Eads, well, would you do that again this year? And he says, no. I think they're planning something that might be televised. You know, they've got this big slot of time. They've got all these sponsors. 
Um, they actually have the person who used to arrange the entertainment for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on staff over there. Um, and they've been pushing more and more toward more kind of professional video friendly entertainment. So it wouldn't surprise me to see something like that happen. But it's it's unclear right now just exactly what they're going to offer up as a celebration. So it could be some kind of New Year's morning show musical production or something. Um, if you like that sort of thing. If I you mean, like that personally, sort of thing. I'd rather be on the street watching yeah. the live people and seeing my friends yeah. out there. I like seeing and, and smelling the floats, the the gorgeous fresh flowers that are on them. Uh, with us is uh, Pastina City Councilman Victor Gordor, Gordo, who um, represents the 5th District, uh, neighborhoods like Orange Heights, Garfield Heights, Washington Square. He also is a member of the Rose Bowl Board of Directors, past president of the Rose Bowl and chairs Pasadena's Economic Development Committee. Councilman Gordo, it's good to have you with us. Um, what kind of a financial hit is this to Pasadena with the cancellation of the parade? First off, uh, thank you, uh, Larry and Sharon, for having me on. Um, you know, this is a uh, this is a very disappointing news um, for all the reasons that uh, you've stated uh, the, the parade is a, a rejuvenation, if you will, year over year, uh, where people can come out and celebrate the beginning of the new year and do it together. And and so first and foremost, um, we're, we are all disappointed that the parade is canceled for that reason. But the economic hit um, to our local economy is very real. You know, everyone from restaurateurs to uh, hotels uh, to um uh, mom and pop storefronts um, will feel the impact. Uh, the impact is uh, over uh, 200 million. Um, when you include the game, uh, it's it's higher in, in the neighborhood of uh, 400 million to the local economy, not just Pasadena, but to the region. 400 million dollars, the regional revenue generated by both events. Yeah, I mean, those are estimates, uh, you know, in, in years like, and, and it all depends on uh, uh, what teams are playing in the game, how the, well their fan base travels. Uh, as Sharon points out, this is a semifinal year, uh, and we anticipate uh, uh, that fans in a semifinal year will come out and support their teams and, and travel well, fill not just Pasadena's hotels, but it has a ripple effect as Pasadena hotels fill, then um, people are staying in surrounding communities and dining in Pasadena and uh, surrounding communities. Hotels even in Orange County feel the effect of it, you know, many miles away. Absolutely. People people tend to come to the parade uh, and to the game uh, and make a winter vacation out of it. Uh, and take the opportunity to visit not just Pasadena, but uh, visit the mountains and the beaches and other communities. Uh, And the canceling of the parade will have a tremendous impact uh, in Pasadena and beyond Pasadena. It's just very unfortunate. We're talking with Pasadena City Councilman Victor Gordo joining us, who also is on the Rose Bowl Operating Committee, uh, responsible for the Rose Bowl, Brookside Golf Courses, and, of course, the Rose Bowl's just been hammered uh, financially uh, because of no events. Uh, they haven't been able to hold events there, and that's been very, very difficult, and uh, we don't know yet about the tenant UCLA and its football 
games in the fall. UCLA, of course, coming off a couple of down years anyway, which is herd attendance. At least golf at Brookside has been booming, so Greens fees collections are up. But tough times for the Rose Bowl as a venue as well. We'll continue our conversation, but I'd like to hear from you as an AirTalk listener. Your thoughts about the Rose Parade canceled for 2021-866-893-KPCC. If you have a restaurant, a hotel, another business that's going to be affected by the cancellation of the parade, please share with us uh, what you're hoping to do to try and cope with that. 866-893-5722. A chance for residents, business people, uh, lovers of the Rose Parade to weigh in. The AirTalk page, kpcc.org. We'll be back in just one minute. Earlier this hour, Pasadena's Tournament of Roses announced that the Rose Parade will be canceled January 1st, 2021, because of COVID-19. The months of planning that go into the parade, the uncertainties of where we're going to be in the pandemic, all the costs that go into preparing for something that would be questionable as to whether it could be held, all of that, of course, going into what was an extremely difficult decision for uh, the tournament. I'd like to hear your thoughts about the cancellation of the parade, whether it's disappointment, whether you think the tournament did the right thing, and what effect it will have on you if you're someone for whom the parade is a source of livelihood. Many businesses... um, Food providers, restaurants, uh, retail establishments, hotels um, get significant revenue from the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl game. 866-893-KPCC. Kira uh, tweets at AirTalk, isn't all of this being driven primarily by fear of litigation? KPCC correspondent Sharon McNary, is that anything that came up uh, from the tournament? Concerns over, you know, what would happen if people got sick? Well, I mean, if there is a spread of coronavirus, wouldn't the larger concern be for everybody's health? I mean, that's all I'm hearing from the organizers is whether, one, the government would permit it to happen. We've been seeing events cancel, you know, left and right. I I have nothing left to race this year because everything gets canceled. Um, So, yeah, you can always sue anybody over anything. But, you know, what's the right thing to do? I you know, you can't have a super spreading event if there's still active coronavirus around. Um, I mean, imagine trying to space people six feet apart. Uh, I, I can't even imagine. It's 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 elbow to elbow at, yeah. at this parade every year. No, so so true. Um, now, with the floats, I assume that at this point the designs have been done for floats, um, even if if the frames haven't been constructed. I don't know where where they're at on that process. But is all of this expected to then carry over to the twenty twenty two parade? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago when I started thinking about this topic, since, of course, I planned my New Year's Day out months and months in <laughs> advance, um, I talked to some of the local uh, float builders who do their own float building, and, and they said that they understood that if the parade was canceled, um, things like this theme would just carry over to next year. Um, and the idea was to cancel this before too much investment was was paid out of pocket by sponsors and float builders and all of that. Okay. Uh, let's talk with Sam in Covina. You're on AirTalk. Sam, your thoughts about the parade's cancellation? 
Well, I'm a tour guide of the world-famous Rose Bowl. I've been giving tours of the Rose Bowl since the summer of 2014. And these last few months, since March, it's just been a sad thing for all of us who love the Rose Bowl. I give tours to people all over the world, people that travel from all over America, like your your council member said, that come in for this vacation time. And uh, it's, we love the Rose Bowl, and it's just, it's just terrible right now. It's just a frustrating thing. Yeah, Sam, thank you. And we're so sorry about being one of the tour guides and that you can't give tours of the stadium at this point because of COVID-19. Sam and Covina, we go back to Councilmember Victor Gordo. Um, just briefly, uh, let's talk the finances of the Rose Bowl. I was talking about how difficult things are. I know that the city uh, has made a transfer uh, of funds to the Rose Bowl because it's it's servicing debt for uh, the rehabilitation that was done of the stadium. If the game doesn't end up being played on January 1st, what sort of uh, economic condition will the Rose Bowl be in? Well, you know, the, the Rose Bowl, like many other businesses, had to shut down overnight. And so we went from over $50 million a year in revenue um, to uh, shutting down the doors and seeing no revenue. We're, we're trying with small events, um, you know, but uh, if the Rose Bowl doesn't occur, were not to occur, um, that's an additional uh, five to six million dollar hit to the Rose Bowl's finances. Um, already uh, hurting, and uh, you know it's it's a it's a difficult time. Um, it's a difficult time uh, at the Rose Bowl and uh, everywhere else. But certainly uh, that would not help uh, to cancel the game. Um, we and, and let me be clear: um, no decision has been made about uh, college football or the Rose Bowl game. Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm just looking at a worst case scenario that you don't have the game because I, I know that the, the stadium's in a tough situation right now. Yeah. The like, like, uh, you know, other large venues, um, and even smaller venues, um, the, the large events uh, are simply not possible, uh, for the reasons that Sharon state uh, has stated, you know, health, uh, has to come first and foremost, uh, and the risk of a super spreading event, uh, in the absence of uh, uh, a vaccine um, makes it very difficult to plan for those events. Councilman Gordo, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much on what's a sad day for Southern California, but particularly for Pasadena, where the Rose Parade, the central event of the year, the Rose Parade has been canceled for 2021. Our Sharon McNary correspondent breaking the news for us. The Rose Bowl game continues on the schedule, but uncertainty surrounds it. Susie in Buena Park says, I'm disappointed. Protests have been allowed because they're outdoors, so it seems strange they wouldn't be able to have masking and other safety protocols in place so the parade could still be held. And Linda in Torrance says, I've been a float decorator for 30 years. I understand how hard it would be to decorate a float right now while physically distancing. Linda, thank you for that. Stay tuned. Fresh Air with Terry Gross comes up next with New York staff writer Jane Mayer as Terry's guest. Then BBC NewsHour at 1. And then Take 2 with A. Martinez, our own here at KPCC. A joins you at 2 o'clock. Have a great afternoon.